Romans, they say. We have taken a little detour as we concluded the fifth chapter of Romans. And uh, we talked about grace and growing in grace and grace in the home and the church and so forth. And now we're going to resume our study of the book of Romans. And for those of you that are just joining us and have been with us for the past several weeks and you've not participated with us uh, from some months back, we have covered chapter 1 through chapter 5 of the book of Romans. And this morning we will begin chapter 6. Just by way of review, I think it's important um, that we just do a kind of an overview of the first five chapters, especially for those who have not uh, participated with us in the study. And that will bring us up to speed where we are in chapter 6. Remember, this is a letter that Paul has written to the believers, the Christians in the city of Rome, and they are gathering together in a series of little home churches, much like our mini-church system. Paul has never been there. He doesn't uh, know anybody there, maybe just a few people. But he wants to go to Rome. Indeed, in the first 17 verses of the first chapter, his introduction, his salutation, if you will, as he introduces himself, he tells them he's longed to come and visit them, but he's been prevented from doing so until most recently. He wants to go to Rome for a number of reasons. One... He wants to strengthen the church. In the book of Acts, throughout the book of Acts, Paul goes around to all the churches that were planted, strengthening the churches. Indeed, he tells them that he wants to impart some spiritual gift to make them strong. The second thing he wants to do is he wants to be received by them. If you have read in the book of Acts, every town that Paul goes to, he's beat up, kicked out, rejected. All sorts of things happen to him. He's not exactly received more lovingly. And so he hopes that if he sends this letter on ahead, they'll read it, they'll understand the doctrine of Christianity, they'll understand what he's going to say to them, they'll understand grace, and they'll receive him. And thirdly, he wants to use Rome as a base of operations. He tells them he wants to go to Spain. He wants to go further on into Europe and do evangelization. And he knows that if he can get the gospel firmly entrenched in Rome, strengthened in Rome, because Rome is the center of the Roman Empire. All roads lead to Rome. You've heard that saying? That the gospel will be disseminated out of Rome by people who will leave the city and go to the outlying districts of the Roman Empire. The gospel will grow. Tremendous strategy. So for Paul, it's critical to get to Rome. And so he writes this letter. And the letter of Romans is the definitive statement of the doctrine of Christianity. If you want to understand the faith, If you want to understand Christianity, if you want to understand what God is doing, his program and his plan, study the book of Romans, and you'll get tremendous insights. And that's what we're doing. We're going chapter by chapter, nearly verse by verse. Some people are anguishing over it, and others are rejoicing. You're always going to have that, right? So we're going to cover five verses this morning. Aren't you excited? So he's introduced himself, the first 17 verses. In the 16th verse, he says... I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He's excited about the gospel. Why? He says, I'm eager to preach it to you. Why is he so eager? Why is he not ashamed? He says, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. He says, when you believe what God says, your life will be changed forever, mightily. And that's what we're going to look at this morning in chapter 6. We're going to look at the new man that the person becomes as a Christian. 
Not the same old person. He's a new person. And so Paul hearkens to that great good news in verse 16 of the first chapter. Good news, he says. The good news of Jesus Christ changes lives. Now, before he can tell us the good news and spell out the good news in detail, he's going to tell us the bad news. There is bad news, you know. A person cannot really truly appreciate and value good news unless they really truly appreciate and understand the bad news first. Does that make sense to you? And so he's going to spell out the bad news in, in, in very graphic detail. And that is in chapter 1, verse 18, clear through chapter 3, verse 20, he spells out the bad news. He starts off in chapter 1, he says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And then he goes on and on and on and on. He says, Men are without excuse. And he points to every kind of immorality imaginable, every kind of disobedience, every kind of violation of God's law, every violation of what is right and decent and moral. He shows us in chapter 1 how people deserve to have God's wrath poured out against them, how they knew him, but they reject God and they turn to evil. He says that the vile and the wicked deserve to have God's wrath poured out on them. Would you agree? Yeah, when we look out at this world, we look at vile, horrible criminals. We look at people like Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin. We look at people who murder people. We look at child abusers, rapists. Vile people. Destructive people. And we say, their unrepentant sin and their hardness of heart deserves God's wrath. Now, there's a second category of person that God's pouring out His wrath against. You may, have known, may not have known this. This is your, your classic good person. This is the person who believes that they're good, relatively good, and if there is a God in heaven, that they'll go there because they're relatively good. They know that they do some bad in their life. They know that they do some good. But they think that they do more good than bad and that the good will outweigh the bad and somehow God will grade on the curve and when it comes time, they'll get in. They're certainly not as bad as those people. You remember the publican and the Pharisee in Jesus' story? I thank you, God, that I'm not like that one. <laughs> Rather than God, thank you that there but for the grace of God go I, you see. So there's that second category of people, the good people. The people weren't too bad. Paul addresses those people in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, you therefore have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else. He says, for whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself. Why? Because you do the same things. Uh-oh. I mean, I'm in the same boat as them, even though I'm not nearly as vile as they are externally. Yes, you're in the same boat. You're lost too. You're going to hell. <gasps> now there's a third group of people, and these are the people who go to church. These are the churchgoers. These are the externally religious these are the ones who, when they pass the plate, they throw a buck in the plate and they make a show of it. These are the ones who carry a big Bible, but they never read it. These are the ones who are into all the external stuff. These are the legalists. These are the ones who are into performing for everybody to see. Remember we talked about that last week? Legalism in the church, one of the classic forms is externalism and overemphasis on externals. So these are the churchgoers. These are the people who aren't really saved. They're not really born again. 
And there are the people standing up and say, oh yeah, Paul, well, I can see it. I can see it. Those vile sinners deserve God's wrath. And oh yes, those people over there, those self-righteous goody-goodies who say they don't need God, whoo, they deserve to go to hell too. But I go to church, Paul. I go to synagogue. I go to temple. Paul says, eh uh-uh. <laughs> You too. He says, what should we say then? We have already said the Jew and Gentile are alike all under sin. He says everybody's in the same boat. There is no human being, no matter what category that person is, there's no human being based on their own efforts, their own energy, their own ability, their own talent, their own looks, nothing gets them into the kingdom of God. Okay? That's what he says in chapter 1, clear through, chapter 3, verse 20. Now in verse 21 of chapter 3, he says this. That being a settled issue, he says, but now, two wonderfully refreshing words. I mean, can you see this? He lays everybody low. Everybody's going, oh, bummer, man. Wow, ooh, we're all in the same boat. He says, but now, a righteousness from God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. In verse 22, he says, and this righteousness comes through faith in Jesus Christ, to all who, what? Believe. He says, God wants to save you. You see, remember when we talked about the difference between Christianity and any other faith, any other religion, any other philosophy? You know what the one difference is? This. Christianity is the only system that says God is reaching down and making men right with him. Every other system says men are reaching up and trying to make themselves right with God, and that is impossible. How can an imperfect being make himself right with a perfect being? Logically, it's impossible. It can't happen. But can a perfect being reach down and make an imperfect being right with him? Yes. That's what God's doing. And so God is revealing His righteousness. And that righteousness comes as a free gift to all those who believe, who put their faith in Jesus. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the way. People look around today and they say, you know, you talk to them about the Lord, you talk to them about Jesus, you talk to them about God and becoming good and all that stuff. And they say, well, you know, if there was such a good God, why doesn't He do something? Look at all the evil in the world. Look at all the wars. Look at all the injustice. Why doesn't He do something? You tell me about this good God. He already done something. (laughs) What has he done? He sent Jesus to the cross. He's opened the way. And he's standing here with his hand wide open with a gift of righteousness and life. And he says, receive it. And we stand there going, no. (laughs) Crazy, isn't it? Have Have you ever had the opportunity to offer somebody a free gift? I mean, something they've absolutely needed. They could never get for themselves. It is a priceless gift, expensive. And you're giving, you bought it, and you're going to give it to them and have them refuse it. You think, what are they doing? You're nuts. Take this thing. It's free. I don't want it. I, I don't need it. You need it. Get it. Take it. I gave it for you. And when they refuse it, you go, you're nuts. What's, what's the matter with them? Pride, huh? Pride, ego. 
God is revealing his righteousness. He's reaching down and he's making men right with him. And all he's waiting for them to do is to turn around and say yes and receive the free gift. And he'll transform their life. Think with me. Every one of us in here who are born again. Because I know there are lots of us that aren't. Every one of us in here who are born again. If you go out and you lead someone to Christ, they become born again. And then you teach them how to lead someone to Christ, so now you're all leading somebody to Christ. You have all of a sudden this geometric progression, this, this incredible curve that just shoots straight up of people coming to Christ. You with me? Those of you that are mathematicians, you understand what I'm talking about? Other people are going, what's he talking about? Now, wouldn't it be wonderful? What kind of world would we live in if, if more and more and more and more and more people were coming to Jesus? Would it be different? Would it be better, do you think? Chances are? Yeah, I think so. I think it's safe to assume that. So God has done something. He's opened the door. Now he's just waiting for men to respond. A righteousness from God has been made known. You say, well, now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I'm seeking God. I'm looking for God. I'm trying to get to God. Why is Jesus the only way? Because he died for you. No one else died for you. Besides, you're not looking for the God of the Bible. You're looking for a God of your own construct, your own design. A God that's easily managed. A God who won't make too many demands on your life. The God of the Bible demands what? Perfection. He demands perfection. And that perfection he gives in Christ. We're going to talk about that. Well, he's introduced this whole idea of faith. He says, this righteousness comes by faith in Jesus Christ. When you put your faith, when you trust what God says and you trust in Jesus, that his death on the cross is effective and efficient for you, for all your sins and all your guilt. You're forgiven. Well, what does it mean to trust? What does it mean to walk by faith, to put your faith in Jesus? That's the reason Paul writes the fourth chapter. The whole fourth chapter of Romans is devoted to a study on faith. How does a person trust God? How does a person walk by faith? And he uses, as his example, a man named Abraham. Most of us are familiar with that account. If you're not, read it in Genesis chapter 12 through 22. Wonderful account. Here's the situation. God comes to Abraham. Abraham is an uncircumcised, idolatrous Gentile. The worst kind of person you could ever be. Especially if you're looking at it from a Jewish perspective, you see. God comes to him and he says, look. I want you to leave your home, your family, all your material possessions. I want you to leave all the stuff you're trusting in, your gods, and I want you to come follow me. And I'll take you to a place that I'll show you when you get there. That's a pretty good deal, isn't it? We want all the information up ahead. We'd want a little triptych, you know, like from the auto club, that big green line that shows you which road to get. We want to know where all the detours were, right, ahead of time. God doesn't show us where the detours are. There are detours out there in that trap. In that, in, that, in that travel. But he calls us to walk by faith. So here he is. Abraham says, well, okay. Now, when God comes to Abraham, he's 60. Sarah's 50. They don't have any kids. God says, if you'll trust me, if you'll follow after me, I'll bless you. I'll, give, I'll make you the father of many nations, multitudes of offspring. Now, Abraham says, that's a pretty good deal. You have to know that he lived in a culture that valued big families. We don't value big families. We're into 1.2 kids, right? <laughs> a big family huge tribe, a nation of people that would come from him would mean power, prestige, and security in his old age. So that sounded like a good deal. He didn't have anything yet. 
He's 60, Sarah's 50, she's barren, no kids. He figures, well, I've got nothing to lose. All right? So now you have to know something about Abraham. It takes him about 15 years to get started. Not till he's 75 does he really start walking with God. Kind of like some of us, huh? You're, not, you're in good company, you know, when you get off to a slow start. I'm not advocating a slow start. I'm just saying that this does happen. So here they are, 75, Sarah, 65. Now he starts after God. He's getting serious. Okay? He's believing God now. He figures, all right, if I'm going to be the father of many nations, it's got to start off with one son. I've got to have a son. No kids yet. He figures, nine months, right? Nine months. He goes out, he walks with God for nine months, he turns to Sarah, and he says, well? <laughs> Sarah says, nothing yet. Abraham says, well, maybe there's a little lag in time. He says, I'll give you six more months. Six more months, he says, well, nothing yet. He says, hmm, did I hear right? I gave up everything, nothing's happening. Well, it's only the first year, I'll spend a little bit more time. He goes out there, five years. Nothing. Put yourself in Abraham's place. Would you wonder if you heard right? You're out there in the desert, you gave up everything, you're going, hmm. <laughs> Ten years, nothing. Fifteen years, nothing. Twenty years, nothing. Would you scratch your head? Would you really puzzle? Would you go, whoa, what am I doing out here? Nothing is happening. <laughs> Paul says in the fourth chapter of Romans that it was 25 years, Abraham was 100, Sarah was 90. A hundred years old. He says in the 16th verse of the fourth chapter of Romans, the promise comes by what? Faith. The promise is fulfilled when you really believe. And you know what? You know when you know that you really believe is when it's out there and it's absolutely impossible and you're hanging on thin air, you're with God. You got nothing. You got nothing, my God. And your circumstances are screaming out at you, no way. Paul says, Abraham considered his circumstances. He looked at himself, he looked at his body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old. You know what that means, don't you? It means he's impotent. There ain't no way. I mean, he looked at his body, he says, oh, nope, doesn't work. Then he looks over at lovely Sarah, who's 90. No. That ain't going to work either. (laughs) They don't know of any other geriatric couples having kids, do you? Do you know of any 100-year-old men and 90-year-old women who are having kids? No, I don't either. You see what I'm saying? God takes you out to the limit. He takes you beyond the limit. He takes you out there where you've got to stand by faith, where you're going, wow. Where everything in your circumstances is going to say, no way is this going to happen. When you're going to go, oh, God. (laughs) That's where Abraham was. Paul says that Abraham was strengthened in his faith, and he gave glory to God, knowing that God could what? Could accomplish what he had promised. The promise comes by faith. So Paul introduces us to faith. He tells us what it is to walk by faith. It is not uncommon when God says something, he says, I'll take care of you, I'll provide for you, I'll meet all your needs, I'm going to take you to heaven, that a lot of times there are going to be some big detours, it's going to take some time, that you can trust God, you can take him at his word, and you can stand on it. 
you can take it to the bank, regardless of what the scientists say, regardless of what the philosophers say, regardless of what the sociologists say, regardless of what the psychologists say. God's word is true. And you can trust it. When everything else says no way, your circumstances deny what the Bible and God's word say to you, you can say, I know my circumstances don't look good. I know it doesn't look good. But I believe God. And you can call me fool if you want, but I'm going to stand on God's word. I'm going to wait and trust him. Because I know and I'm confident that God can accomplish what he said he would do. Amen? Amen. Now, having introduced this whole concept of faith, and he's telling us, you know, the salvation is by faith. He's going to save us by faith. Not by works, not by marching, not by doing. He's just going to, because when we believe, God saves us. Now, in the fifth chapter, Paul writes the fifth chapter to answer an, obliga- uh, answer an objection. He says this. People are going to come with the objection to the question. They're going to say, Paul, are you sure? Are you sure believing is sufficient? Don't I have to do something? Don't I have to march? Don't I have to perform? I mean, we're into performing, aren't we? All of us are into performing. We perform on our jobs. Certainly to get paid, but more to get accepted, huh? We perform in our relationships. Why? For acceptance. We are legalists at heart. Didn't we talk about that last week? Week before that? And so we go and we say, but God... Are you sure I don't have to perform? Don't I have to get my act together? Don't I have to have it all cleaned up before I can come to you and, and have you say, all right? No, you come to him just like you are. He does the cleaning up. He does the transforming. He does the changing. He makes you different. All he wants you to do is trust him. And he'll do everything you can't do. But you see, we struggle with that because we're into performance. And we attribute to God that same attitude. We've got to perform. Well, that argument comes. Paul says, no, no, no. It's faith. And in chapter 5, he gives us assurance after assurance after assurance after assurance after assurance. And we did a very in-depth study of that whole chapter. Convincing study that, yes, faith is sufficient. In fact, he starts the chapter off, verse 1. He says, since we have been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. We have it. In the Greek, if you look behind the English, in the Greek, it's in the perfect tense. That means we have peace with God perfectly, permanently. Through who? Jesus Christ. See why Jesus is so significant, so important? Without Jesus, we could never have peace with God. Now, we come to the 20th verse of the 5th chapter. And it's in the 20th verse of the 5th chapter where Paul says something that just riles a whole bunch of people up. And and that's the reason for the 6th chapter. So to understand the 6th chapter, we have to understand what he says in the 5th chapter, in the 20th verse, that gets people so riled up. He says this. The law was added so that trespass might what? Increase. Now, you know, logically we think that a law would would be added, a law would come in, a law would be passed, brought to bear, so that it would what? It would restrict trespass, right? I mean, isn't isn't that what we say? Don't we always say, there ought to be a law? Why do we say there ought to be a law? So the trespass might increase? No, so that we'd restrict it. But God's purpose for giving the law was to what? Was to cause us to see just how messed up we really are. And seeing that, 
we would be violating the law all over the place. And he says, in where, now here it is, here it comes. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Oh, that set people crazy. Now you have to understand the mind of the legalist. The mind of the legalist is going to interpret that passage, not only then, but even today in the church. And they're going to say, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You're saying that we should sin more to obtain God's grace? Now, some people are going to use that verse as license, and they're going to say, oh, well, you're saying that to get more of God's grace, I should sin more. Where sin increases, grace increases more. Do you see the, the, the way that people interpret that? Legalists, people who don't understand grace, though they profess to, who really don't understand God's grace and the transforming power of his grace, are going to seize upon that statement. And they're going to attack that statement. And they're going to say, wait a minute, you're opening the door to license. People are going to sin all over the place. You're antinomian. That means you're against the law. And that's what Paul was being accused of. And so we have chapter 6. And Paul begins chapter 6. And he says, what shall we say then? Shall we say this? Shall we go on sinning so that grace might increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that we who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were therefore baptized. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, that we too might live a what? New life. He goes on to say, and if we've been united with him in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. Shall we go on sinning? Let me pose this question to you. Is it possible... Is it possible for a person who is saved to go on in the, same, in the same relationship with sin, the same old lifestyle in which they were in before they got saved? Is it possible for that to happen? Is it possible to have a transaction with God without any effect? Is it possible to have a transaction with God without being transformed? Some people would say yes. Lots of people would say yes. Lots of people tell you, oh yeah. It happens all the time. Shall we go on sinning? Can we use God's grace as an excuse to go on sinning so that we can say, well, God's going to get more glory if we go on sinning. He gives us more grace. Is it possible for a born-again person to go on sinning? Let's look at this verse a little bit more closely. Now in Acts 21, verse 28, Paul is accused. He's accused of preaching against the people, against Judaism. He's accused of preaching against the temple. He's accused of preaching against the law. In the third chapter of Romans, verse 8, Paul says, we are um, being accused. We're wrongly being accused 
of saying this, let us do evil that good might result. Let us do whatever we want. Let us continue to sin that we get more grace. The whole book of Galatians is written. The whole book of Galatians is written to this effect. To warn the Galatian believers against trusting in works that is salvation by faith through God's grace. And it's all the Judaizers and all the people who are the legalists of the day who are battling against Paul. And if you read the book of Acts, every time he's beat up, kicked out of a city, every time he is persecuted, it's because, you see, there's Satan who's behind the scenes who's stirring all this up because he doesn't want people to believe in faith and take comfort in God's grace. He wants people to be convinced that they've got to work their way to heaven. And so he stirs up all the antagonists against Paul in the preaching of grace. Paul did not preach the kind of grace that condoned evil. Grace is not permissiveness. It's not license. It is transforming God's grace. When you take shelter under his wings, God changes you. It is not only impermissible for a a Christian to continue in sin, it is impossible for a Christian to continue in sin. Paul proceeds to obliterate the argument of the legalist. He says, you're talking about this? It's it's not even even an argument. There's no way. Let me show you how. That a true born-again person won't continue in sin. They can't. Isn't that reassuring? Well, let's continue with his argument. In Jude 4, let me show you an illustration. Jude 4 of of, of this kind of situation. Jude is the book right before the book of Revelation. It's one chapter long, verse 4. Verse 4 in Jude. I want you to read this with me. He says this. He says, Certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality. Now there are people who are going to read about, think about, and turn God's grace into a license for immorality. God's grace will be spurious to them. And so Jude warns the church, warns us to watch out for that but doesn't deny God's grace. A classic example of of an individual like this, have you ever heard of the person by the name of Rasputin? He was the evil genius of the Romanovs in Russia prior to 1917 to the Bolshevik Revolution. Rasputin was a monk, unlettered, uneducated, totally ignorant. He propounded and put forth this philosophy. He said, if you're going to sin, don't be an ordinary sinner. Sin wildly. Sin violently. Sin as much as you can. Because the more you sin, the more grace God can give you. And if you read the history of the Romanovs, if you read the history of Rasputin's effect on the Romanov family, on the czarist system in Russia at that particular point in history, they were so corrupted, so immoral, so vile, that their reputation was known worldwide. 
that the immorality at court was vile. It was all because this one philosophy permeated the environment. You see? The more you sin, the more grace you get. Grace is not license, it's not permissiveness. There are lawless people who are condemned, but who will put forth that argument. That's not the argument of Paul. This idea of going on sinning, continuing sinning. The Greek word there, to go on or to continue, is epimeno. I've given it to you in your notes. The idea behind that is to abide in, to stay in, to remain in, as one would remain in a house as a place of residence. I'm going to remain here. This is where I put my roots down. This is my place of residence. Shall we abide in, remain in, continue in sin as a place of residence so that grace might increase? See, that's Paul's argument. Do you see that? What does he say? He says, by no means. Write this verse down. Write this passage down. We don't get, we're not going to get a chance to study it in depth this morning, but I want you to go back and read it on your own. Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the sower and the seed. Do you remember that one? Jesus describes four kinds of soil on which a farmer goes out and scatters the seed. Rather indiscriminately, and the, soil, the seed falls on four different kinds of soil, and it's only one kind of soil that bears what? Fruit. It's the soil that's been tilled up, that is rich, that is deep, that the seed is sown, it puts down deep roots, and it comes up and it bears fruit. He says some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. The church, beloved, is full of people who are not born again. The church is full of people who are of the other kinds of soil. Rocky soil, soil full of weeds, that as the word grows up, the weeds grow up right along with it and choke it out. And these people do not bear fruit. The person who is born again cannot go on sinning. It is impossible. Impossible. Can't live in that same environment. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, John writes this. This is astounding. And he's categorical in his statement. He says, one who is born of God cannot go on sinning. Can't do it. He reiterates that in the fifth chapter, verse 18. Says essentially the same thing. He goes on to say in that passage, incidentally also, this will be helpful for you, that the evil one cannot touch that one. Isn't that encouraging? Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. Look here, this is a classic Verse. Turn to Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. I want you to see this verse. It will illustrate it. Paul writes here, God has rescued us, now get this, God has rescued us from the what? From the domain of darkness... And he has transferred us to the kingdom of what? Of his son. Let me illustrate this for you. Draw you a picture. I want you to picture in your mind two big fields, huge fields. This field over here, we're going to name, we're going to label the domain of darkness. This is the rule, the reign of Satan. The Bible says that Satan is the god of this world. The Bible goes on to tell us that all men are born in sin. 
They're enslaved to sin. They are of their father, the devil. Okay? That's what goes on in this first field. The second big field is over here. This is the domain, the rule, the reign of Christ, God's Son. Now, these two fields are separated by an impassable gulf. The gulf is so wide, so deep, that no person can get across. You can't go from here to there on your own. You've heard about this kingdom over here. Kind of vague, kind of blurry to you. You've heard about it. You're not sure what it's all about. And you think that there's some way, certainly, that you could get there. You do everything you can, but you find out it's futile. Or you're convinced and, and deceived to think that somehow you've got there on your own, when in fact you've not. You're still over here. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit, God sends His Holy Spirit to convict the world, that is to convince the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So the Holy Spirit comes, and He starts convincing people, one at a time, that they're sinners, that they're lost, that they're enslaved to sin, that they're slaves of the devil. And they can't get out of this slavery on their own. They're entrapped. They're born there. And their ultimate destiny is eternity in hell. That's pretty terrifying when when that realization of that suddenly comes upon you and you begin to understand what's true and where you're headed. And you begin to feel extremely desperate. Now, when the Holy Spirit does that conviction, then he also sends believers. And so a little Christian comes into your life, hollers over there from the other side, says, you it's really great over here, you ought to come over. Believe what God says, because it's all true. Put your faith in Jesus and God will save you and he'll bring you over here. And so you say, all right, I do. Do we have any new Christians here this morning? We do? What's your name? Sandy. Sandy? How long have you been a Christian? About two months. Two months, perfect. Can I use you as an example? <laughs> Thank you. Here's Sandy. Sandy's over here in this field, right? Can you relate to what I'm saying? The man of darkness, you know, futile, frustrating, no hope. It's this never-ending treadmill, nothing really to look forward to, ultimately in the long run. You hope there's something out there, but there's some nagging sense in the back of your mind that's not there. You know how to get there. And all of a sudden, God sends a little Christian into your life and begins to talk to you, and maybe you turn on the TV or something, or someone says something about Jesus, and you say, ah, the light goes on, Jesus, and you put your faith, Woo! and God takes you. Sandra, right? And he takes you, and he translates you, transfers you over into the kingdom of God's Son. You become born again. Now, is Sandy perfect? Huh? Sandy is not perfect. Is Sandy going to sin? Yes. Is she over here? Yes. She has been born again in spirit. She's been renewed in spirit. She is spiritually alive to God. Her flesh... Her mind, her emotions, all those things are still fallen. They have not yet been perfected. That is yet still future. Are you with me? So she's over here. Now Satan is over here in his own kingdom. He is really ticked because he's lost one. He is really upset. And he knows that if he doesn't do something quick to immobilize her, to discourage her, to defeat her, to deceive her, that she's going to holler back over here and say... Hey, it's real! Right? So what he's going to do is he gets on his... Now, he can't get over there either. You see, if it took God to get you over there, it's going to take God to get Satan over there. God's not going to take Satan over there. And incidentally, when God brings you over here, you're over here to stay, beloved. You're over here to stay. 
if it took God to get you here, you couldn't get here on your own, you can't get back over there on your own, and God's not going to take you back over there because he paid too big a price to get you. Are you with me? So here's the scenario. Here's what happens. Satan gets on the edge of his kingdom on his tippy toes, and he hollers across the gulf. He says, Yoo-hoo, Sandy! <laughs> now Sandy's over here. She's a brand new Christian. She is a baby Christian. And she's going, ooh, ah, ooh, ah, right? <laughs> Reading your Bible going, ooh, I never saw that there. Oh, this is wonderful. Meeting all kinds of Christians. Church is fun now. <laughs> the whole new world is opened up to her, right? She's astounded. But she hears this old familiar voice, familiar to her flesh. That's called temptation, beloved. And that voice blows in her ear from across the chasm, and she finds herself doing this. Can you relate? Yeah? Sure. All right, now, here he is. He says, now remember, he's out to immobilize her. He doesn't want her active. He's lost her. He's lost her for good, but he can, his next best thing is to immobilize her. He says, Yoo-hoo, Sandy. Do you remember what we used to do? <laughs> now, whatever you and him used to do, you see. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> We're all there, so. So she's over here, and she hears that. And is there an opportunity, is there a chance that she might fall? That she might sin, she might disobey? Yes. Babies. You've heard this example. Have you heard me use this before? What do babies do a lot? They poop their diapers, don't they? I fully expect you're going to poop your diapers. Now let me ask you, a human parent, when their precious little package poops their diapers, what does the parent do? Does the parent punch them out? So you do that one more time and it's out! Is that what the parent does? No, the parent says, oh, little baby. And all the brothers and sisters gather around and say, can we help, can we help, can we help? Pew, but can we help? <laughs> right, isn't that true? So when a precious little baby loses it, succumbs, gives in to temptation, does God kick him out of the kingdom? No. No. He says, church, church, there's one who has... What? Fallen. One who's been caught in sin. Restore them gently, graciously. You see that? See God's grace at action through the church? Now, here we are. We're over here. She's going to sin. She's going to make some mistakes. She's not perfect. But God's going to grow up and mature. We're going to talk about that next week and the week after. But I want to help you understand Paul's argument. It's impossible for Sandy to go on living the same life that she lived over here in this kingdom. She can't do it because why? She's different. He says, look at this. He says, we're baptized into Christ. When we were baptized into Christ, we were baptized into his what? Into his death. Let me ask this question. How many know that there's a 55 mile an hour speed limit? How many know you have to keep it? How many of you realize that when you die, you don't have to keep it anymore? Interesting revelation, right? That when you die, you can go as fast as you want. Isn't that exciting? 
You see, when you die, you die to that, huh? It no longer has a claim on you. When you died with Christ, you died to sin. God miraculously takes you and He transports you 2,000 years into the past. You go up on the cross with Christ. You're baptized into His death. That means that the Holy Spirit, Paul in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians says, by one Spirit we are baptized into one body. It's the Holy Spirit who baptizes, or think of the word baptism as immerses or initiates us into Christ and into His death. I don't know how it happens. It's a miracle. I can't explain it rationally fully. It's an issue of faith. I believe it because the Bible tells me. I have died with Christ, as Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. And when I've been crucified with Christ, when I died with Him on the cross, when they laid Him in the tomb, they laid me in the tomb with Him. And when He was raised to new life, so was I. And then, when I was raised to new life with Him 2,000 years ago, then He miraculously transports me back to the future. Isn't that a cute phrase, back to the future? He transports me back to the future, back to 1988, as a new creature, as a new person. Baptism. It's not water baptism he's talking about here. It's spirit baptism. And your water baptism is a public testimony. It's a public out front statement of the truth of what's happened in the spiritual realm in your life. When you go down under the water, when you come up out of the water, it's a picture of your death and burial and resurrection with Christ that happened 2,000 years ago, even though you received him today. Paul says, don't you know that we were baptized into Christ? We're baptized into his death. We were therefore, he says, buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, that we too might live a new life. You know the burial is the final proof of death? You bury live people? Oh, very dead people, right? And Paul says we're buried with him. That means must, we must be dead. You see his proof? And raised, we're raised in his resurrection so that we may live a new life. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, he says, if any man be in Christ, he is a what? A new creature. He says the old has passed away and the new has come. Isn't that glorious? The new has come. You're a new person. The very first thing you get to do when you're born again is to attend your own funeral. Isn't that great? Say, whoo, I'm glad that person is dead. I'm glad they're out of my life. I'm glad I'm a new creature. Hallelujah is right. He goes on and he says, and if we have been united with him in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his what? Resurrection. Now, he's not talking about the future physical resurrection of the body. He's talking about the reality of the spiritual resurrection that we have already experienced. He's talking about the certainty of it in that passage. A further proof that it's impossible for me to go on sinning so that grace might increase. I have been raised. Perfect tense in the Greek. It's already happened perfectly. And all that I wait now is the physical resurrection of the body. 
the full redemption of the body he'll talk about in chapter 8. And we'll discuss that when we get there. Spiritual resurrection into a new life here and now. New life. A Christian is new, brand new. A Christian is different and better than they were. It's not just the matter of adding something. It's not just that there's a new experience or a new conduct. A Christian is a new creature. There is a new quality of life. Because that person now has been renewed by God inside, in their spirit. They're no longer the same old person. To be saved is to be different. Don't go out and buy the bumper sticker that says, Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven. I hate that bumper sticker. Now, it's true, but I hate it. Because you know what it does? It flaunts something. It's spiritual pride. When we interact with the world, we should act humble in spirit, poor in spirit, gentle people. Not obnoxious, not justifying ourselves, not making excuses. When we sin, we need to say, I sinned. And I'm glad you caught me. I needed someone to catch me in it. But that doesn't make me an unchristian, and that doesn't make the gospel untrue, because I sin. I'll let Jimmy Swagger. The gospel is still true. Jesus is still there. He still saves people and renews them, changes their lives. If you're a Christian, if you're saved, you ought to be different. You ought to be different, and you ought to be better. And if you aren't different, and you aren't better, if people can't see it in your life, if they haven't come to you and say, you know, you're different, I like you better now, I mean, they may fight with you, they may resist you, but they have to admit that you're different and better. If they're not saying that to you, if you're not different, if you don't see it in your own life, you need to stop and examine yourself, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, to make sure you are of the faith. Now, you know what? I stirred up a lot of questions, haven't I? In the back of your mind, you're thinking about but, 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 but. Come back next week and the following week, and I'll answer those questions. Let's pray. Father, we love you this morning. We thank you for being our God. We worship your holy name. We thank you for your grace to us. Lord, your great and glorious transforming grace. Lord, open our eyes to the reality that we can't go on sinning. We can't. It's impossible for us. We're different people. And Lord, in those areas where we do go on sinning, Lord, it's not to get more grace. Lord, it's because we're still imperfect. Give us the courage to come to you to confess our sins, and Lord, to receive your forgiveness. We thank you today for being our God. We thank you for your great gift of salvation. We love you this morning, O oh Lord. You are worthy of all of our worship and praise. Keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed, if you would, please. There are some this morning here today who don't know God. If you came today kind of curious and looking and thinking and wondering and maybe even searching. You think maybe you might want to give your life to God. You don't know him yet. You've heard about him. Some friends have told you. You've heard about Jesus and 
It's all a little fuzzy to you. But there's a sense, there's an awareness, just like in Sandy's life, that you need God. There's an awareness in your life that you violated His law, that you're guilty, and you've got to carry that guilt around with you. You can't ignore it. You can't sweep it under the carpet. You don't know what else to do with it. And maybe it might even be beginning to haunt you, to cause other problems in your life. You see no way out. Jesus is that way out. Jesus said, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I won't lie to you. And I'm the life. I'll give you life. I'll give it to you abundantly. Trust me. You need me. God says, if you put your faith in my son, if you believe what I say to you, that you need him and that he died for you, took your guilt. If you put your faith in my son and Jesus, then I'll save you. And I'll take you out of the domain of darkness. You'll no longer be a slave to sin and Satan. You'll be set free. And I'll transfer you to the kingdom of my son and I'll cause you to be born again, a new creature in Christ. Free for the first time in your life. And a burden will lift off you like you've never known possible. But you have to acknowledge that you're a sinner and you have to acknowledge that you're hell-bound. You have to be absolutely terrified by that. Let that drive you to Jesus. That he be your refuge. That he be your safe harbor. That he indeed be your savior. God stands ready to forgive you and to give you new life if you'll respond and receive that free gift. I'd like the privilege of leading you in a short prayer if you want to give your life to the Lord, if you're ready to surrender your life. Don't worry about the future. Just say, Lord, today, take care of me today. If you want to pray, then you can signal me. While everybody else's head is bowed and everyone else's eyes are closed, you can signal me just by looking up. As our eyes meet, I'll know that you're saying, yes, I want to pray. I want God in my life. I want to ask Jesus to forgive me, make his death on the cross efficient for me. So while everybody else's heads are bowed and eyes are closed, if you want to pray that prayer with me, you just look up at me right now. Just look up. Anybody at all? Is that what you're looking up, sir? Good. Back there? And you too? Good. Is that what you're looking up? Are you peeking up at me because you want to pray? Good. kind of dark in the back. If, if you're looking up and I can't see, please wave, wave your hand at me. Okay. Back there. Back there. Good. There. There. Good. Back there. Wonderful. There, sir. Okay. Anybody else? Over here. Is that why you're looking up? Good. Are you looking up at me back there? Yes. Good. Okay. And you too. Three of you in a row there? Wonderful. All right. Is that why you're looking up? Good. Are you looking at me because you want to pray, sir? No? Okay. Anybody else? Did I miss anybody? Let's pray. Make this your prayer. Dear God, I thank you for bringing me here today. I ask you to forgive me for my sins. Cleanse me from all the guilt. Cause me to be born again. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. I surrender my life to you. I thank you for Jesus' death on the cross in my place. He just didn't take a beating for me. He took my sin and my guilt. He became the guilty party. And your justice and your wrath was poured out on him in my place. Lord, I can't comprehend it all. 
I don't understand why you could love me that much to give up your only son. But all I know is that you've done it. And you're offering me the free gift of life. Take me out of the kingdom of darkness and transfer me into the kingdom of your son. And fill me now with your Holy Spirit. Cause me to be born again. I confess to you, Father, I love you. And Jesus, I worship you. And I thank you. And I praise your holy name. And we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. All right.